0: Hear God's word from Mark chapter six, verses 31 through 44. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus. When you envision this scene, you probably have an image in your mind, because you've heard that many of us have heard this story for a long time. Before we jump into the details, let me ask, why are you here tonight? What brings you to the house of God? Do we come seeking a sign? Do we come because we have emptiness that needs to be filled? We all come with something lacking. What emptiness are you hoping to fill here this evening? Maybe you're lonely and you need company. Maybe you have sinned and you need forgiveness and the freedom that comes from forgiveness in Christ. Maybe you're worn out and you're looking for some place of rest. Maybe you're aimless in life and you need direction and purpose. Maybe you're here out of duty. And the religiosity of attendance gives you a sense of value or you fear the consequences of not coming. Maybe you know that Jesus is beautiful and you long to be with him again. To every single one of us, to every single one of you, I'm glad you're here. All of us come dissatisfied with some element of the world's offerings. And I pray that by the end of our time together tonight, we would see that we ought to be disappointed with all of the world's offerings, and be fully satisfied in Christ. Our text today describes true satisfaction, the kind that we need, a satisfaction of eternal weight. So we're going to look at this story in four parts. We're going to look at the need for rest. We're going to look at the need for truth. We're going to look at the feast, the miracle itself, and then we're going to look at satisfaction in Jesus. So those will be our four parts. Let's dive right into the need for rest. And in this part, we're going to be looking specifically at the disciples and what they need as they come, as they arrive on the scene. Jesus tells them, come and rest a while in verse 31. They've been doing a lot of work. They've been out among the countryside teaching, doing signs, and they come back together. And even there, the crowd is rushing on them and they don't even have time to eat. And Jesus said, here, let's get away for a little bit. Let's take a breather. We need to rest. And so they went to a desolate place. This whole scene is set up in a desolate place. It's mentioned three times. And if you'll remember our very first gathering here at Christ Presbyterian Church, February 6th, the desolate place was the setting again. It's where John the Baptist announced in the wilderness, in the desolate place, this good news. Because in the Old Testament, a desolate place is actually a place of restoration and a place of hope, not a place of lack Although we will find out there is not food, yet there is greater restoration in this place. As God brought his people out of Egypt, he gave his newly freed people the law in the wilderness. There his presence was with his people. And as one commentator put it, it is in the wilderness that Israel learned to trust in the provision and protection of their God. So that is exactly what Jesus is calling the disciples to do In all their flurry of ministry. He says, come and trust in my provision and my protection here in the wilderness and rest. So he calls them with him to get away from the crowd out in a quiet place. So they end up being close with Jesus. And this is actually a theme in Mark. Multiple times he, he talks about how the disciples were to get away to be with Jesus When Jesus first called the disciples, he said that he was going to send them, but first he called them to be with him so that then they might go out. He is gentle and lowly. He provides rest for the soul. And he knows that especially now the disciples need this. As important as outreach and ministry is, he also knows there is time to rest and to retreat so that he might lighten their load. When you consider your life, Is there any time of rest? Um, I'm preaching to my own heart right now. Is there any time for rest? Or do you just work for Jesus? When, When you hear, when you remind yourself that you're a Christian, does it make you want to get up and go do something? Or does it give you a sigh of relief? Thank God I am a Christian. Does it give you a breath of fresh air? He calls us to rest regularly in him. Even every Sunday, we are to come and rest in him. It's a foretaste of the eternal resting that we will have in him. Now, this isn't a rest of sitting on the couch. This is a rest of coming away with Jesus to a place of spiritual rest and expectation. Even if it's a place of physical discomfort, it is a place of restoration. It is a place of waiting and anticipation. It's a wilderness of sorts. I pray that we would be people who can receive who Jesus is and that we can be people who are defined by what he has done for us rather than be driven to try to give back and give back and give back and think that that is going to give us value. The disciples came with a need for rest. Jesus was the provision for that rest. Now the crowd came with a need for truth. So we'll look now at part two, the need for truth. And here we'll focus in on what the crowd needed. The crowd needed a purpose. They need a real shepherd. They need a leader. I picture this scene, used to picture this scene, as kind of a big family picnic. A bunch of people sitting down in nice pastures. Yet, as I read further, I realized it was probably more like a protest in Washington. And the reason it seems to be that way is because John tells us other details that the crowd tried to make Jesus king in this moment. So Jesus had to withdraw so that they would not take him by force to make him king. Because you see, who was gathered here? It was 5,000 men. The word for men is very intentional. It's not just human human in general. This is actually a very specific word, 5,000 men. These are proud descendants of Israel. They're tired of the Roman government. Many were good Jews who knew that the Messiah was coming And so they thought, this is the moment. Let's take the opportunity for our movement and make Jesus our king. They had skewed what Jesus was really about into something that they wish Jesus were about. They wished Jesus would be this kind of leader. They wanted him to be the leader of their movement and did not become servants of Jesus's movement. We see all kinds of agendas in our world justified in the name of Jesus. People on both sides pushing for things, saying this is what Jesus would be about. Social issues, political issues, expecting Jesus to fit their mold and be the engine for their car. But we know this is a large part of why Jesus has tried to keep the message of his Messiahship quiet. Because he still has a lot to teach these people. He still wants them to see who he is. And he is going to be seen as the Messiah, but not the one that they expect him to be. He's going to be such a greater Messiah and he is going to lead such a greater movement than this little political coup that was going on by the Sea of Galilee. So here's Jesus with his disciples seeking rest. They get in a boat to get away to a desolate place so that they might rest. And then here comes a crowd forcing him to be king. I wouldn't respond very graciously. First of all, they're interrupting my rest. And second of all, they're forcing me into a position that I don't, I'm not supposed to be in and I don't want to be in. But what is Jesus's response? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We see a glimpse into the heart of God here. We see Jesus with compassion for those who are interrupting his rest and who are trying to, whether they realize it or not, mess up Jesus's plan. Sheep without a shepherd. These people lacked a leader with tender kindness. But they also, this, this phrase sheep without a shepherd implies way more than just tender kindness. They lacked a leader. They lacked somebody who could direct them. In the Old Testament, the phrase sheep without a shepherd shows up a handful of times. And in one instance, it's war imagery. It's war imagery. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13, 7. And in Numbers 27, Israel was as sheep that have no shepherd. So Joshua was commissioned with authority to be their leader. The sheep without a shepherd needed a leader. And in 1 Kings, Ahab was about to go into battle and he called the prophets to tell him whether or not he should go. And there's this one prophet that he didn't like because Micaiah always gave him bad news. And so Micaiah came and told him, Israel will be like sheep without a shepherd if you go into battle. Ahab got all mad, but he went into battle anyway and he died. So Israel ended up without a leader. We might actually understand a similar phrase here. It it would be kind of like calling them sitting ducks just kind of there, open target, no leader, kind of lost. Now, Ezekiel 34 highlights for us that this is not a one-time thing that Israel is just now without a shepherd as if they have had great shepherds in the past. In fact, Ezekiel 34 tells us that this is a pretty common failure of Israel's leaders. They are not being good shepherds. Ezekiel 34 says, Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? And here's some of the problems with the shepherds there in Israel. They have fed themselves rather than feeding the sheep. They eat the fat and clothe themselves with the sheep's wool. They are devouring the ones that they are supposed to care for. The weak and the sick, they don't care for. The injured, the strayed, and the lost, they have been treated with harshness rather than with compassion. That's the kind of leadership Israel has had. They are sheep without a shepherd. And the nation in these days, in this time of Mark, they shared similar failures. The Pharisees used the covenant community for their own promotion. They would be fine devouring the sheep. And as, if we look at our world today, we have to ask what kind of leadership is set up over the churches. There are churches with bad shepherds. They take advantage of the sheep who come hungry. The sheep who are longing to be fed and they misuse them in order to build their fame and gather a large following. There's a focus more on the product of the church's programming than there is on the health of the sheep. Discipleship is lost. Care for these sheep is lost. Compassion for the hurting is considered too inconvenient. When someone is struggling with sin, it's too hard to sit in the mess with them and to walk with them toward holiness. So sadly, all these things are forgotten. Enriched food from God's word is discarded and we'll just give quick fix answers instead because it might get somebody off of our back. Here at Christ Prez, I am looking forward to being a church dedicated to godly shepherding. This is something I long for. There is only one true shepherd and it's Jesus Christ, but he has entrusted some with the task of being his under shepherds. And I'm grateful for our temporary session at Redeemer Church right now. Godly leaders with wisdom. But I long for us to gather and to raise up shepherds from our own. In God's timing. Those who will care for the sheep and not devour them. Because look at how God describes a proper shepherd in Ezekiel 34. We've seen it, what would have failed shepherd does. But what about a good shepherd? This is what God says. God says he will be their shepherd. So let's use him as a standard for a minute. God says, I will seek out my sheep. God says, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's what good shepherding looks like. And God fulfilled his promise. Jesus entered the scene here before the new Israel. And he is the good shepherd. He has compassion on these sheep who have no shepherd. And he begins... What's the first thing he gives to these sheep without a shepherd? Here he is. They're looking to him to be their leader. The first thing he gives them in verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He's teaching them. He's teaching them the truth of repentance for lost, hurting, imperfect souls to find life and forgiveness and strength in him. This is the same message he's been preaching since chapter one. The gospel of God, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus said. And that is the message he continues to teach because he knows the crowd needs it. The crowd needs the truth. This truth will lead them. This truth will guide them with Jesus Christ as their good shepherd. As we consider, once again, our lives, how often do we get our minds set on a specific solution, a project, an ideal, a movement, a revolution, thinking that's what is what's going to fix the world. That's what's going to fix my life. That's going to give me purpose. Yet then we need to remember, there's only one king. There's only one truth that is all sufficient. There's one gospel that we truly long for. I so often fret about this or that, and I feel overwhelmed or hopeless about X, Y, and Z, and I think that the success of anything rides on my shoulders. And then at the right time, God reminds me whether it's a good word from a believer, or God leads me to the right text and scripture to remind me that the solution is Jesus and what He has done. The solution is that Jesus is King, He is the Good Shepherd. And that solution is so much better than what I had estimated the answer would be. The crowd came thinking they were going to set up a military kingdom and Jesus said, I have something so much better. And it is his lordship as the suffering servant. So he cared for them. He had compassion on them and showed them the truth. And then he fed them. So we've looked at the need For rest, we've looked at the need for truth, and now we're looking at the feast. Here is Jesus, the good shepherd over Israel, organizing them in groups on the green grass, and then he abundantly feeds them with five loaves and two fish. Now, there are a lot of obstacles here. Well, they're only obstacles because the disciples made them obstacles. The time and the location is late in the night, late in the day. They're in a desolate place, and the disciples are sure to point this out, saying, let's send them into the villages so that they can go find food. And then Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, we we don't have a year's salary to feed these people. That's what 200 denarii would be. It's a year's wages almost. That's expensive. And then the quantity. Jesus says, how much do we have? And they said, five loaves and two fish. How in the world does that end up equaling food for 5,000 men plus any women and children that would have been there? Ultimately, these are only obstacles because of the disciples' lack of faith. Listen to what Jesus says. He had given them the opportunity to feed them. He says, you give them something to eat. After all, they had just been on mission with Jesus. He had just commissioned them and sent them, and they were teaching and doing miracles in his name, and here they are in their balking. We, we, we don't know what to do because they didn't look to Jesus. They had an opportunity to trust in Jesus and to feed the crowd. These are the ones who had just returned from successful ministry. They're supposed to have learned to depend on Christ in their ministry, but they focused on the difficulties. So Jesus took over and Jesus became as, as clear. Mark tells us so clearly, Jesus now is the good shepherd set up over his people. Now, how did he do it? How did he multiply this bread? We don't know. Did he have a bag that he pulled a bunch of loaves out and just kept coming? Or as he tore it, did it grow? We don't know. We're not told. Because that doesn't matter. Mark's point is not specifically how the miracle happened, but to show who Jesus is. Because here we see, as the Old Testament expects From the good shepherd, we see that in Jesus, as he has authority over natural forces, so he also has authority in the spiritual realm. Specifically these. God had provided manna for Israel in the wilderness when they were hungry. So here is Jesus in the wilderness with Israel and gives them bread. Speaking of the wilderness, again, the place of restoration. Just like God gave his law and dwelt with his people in the wilderness, so here is Jesus teaching them And being with the crowd. And the expectation is that the good shepherd will give them good pasture. Or, you know, Psalm 23. Lays me down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. And here is Jesus. Mark tells us specifically that they sat down in the green grass. He is absolutely evoking these Old Testament images of the good shepherd in front of his people. And the people in front of Jesus are the new Israel. And we know that because Jesus organizes them into groups, which recalls what Moses did as he organized Israel into groups. Here is Jesus giving order and purpose to his people. He's the good shepherd. He is the one promised in the Old Testament. He is God himself who has come to seek and to feed his sheep. So we see how the Old Testament has all these promises fulfilled in this very moment as Jesus is set up as the shepherd over Israel, but that's not all that this miracle shows us. This miracle also looks forward to who Jesus will show himself to be in even more fullness. The next time in Mark that Jesus holds bread, as he does here in this passage, says a prayer to heaven and breaks the bread, you know it. It's the Last Supper. It's Mark 14. Jesus is the bread of life that he offers to the crowd even here in the wilderness. As the crowd ate and was satisfied, so all who take and eat Jesus will never again hunger or thirst. And the Lord's Supper anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb that we all await on that last day when we are united to our Savior in celebration. So right here in Mark 6, we see on the green grass beside the Sea of Galilee, in the person of Jesus, all those Old Testament promises of Israel, as Israel sits before Jesus on the grass, we see that all those promises clashing, colliding, right here with the future eternal hope of Israel, feasting on Christ and feasting with Christ for eternity. Maybe that's why this miracle is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is told in all four Gospels. Because right here, we see so much about who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament shepherd, Messiah, and as the promise for hope everlasting. Jesus gives us good food, but more than that, he gives us himself. And that's what he offered to the people there in the wilderness. We've seen the need for rest. We've seen the need for truth. We just examined the feast. Now let's look. That satisfaction in Jesus. Because we don't come to this table just to eat some bread and drink some wine. We come because there's something so much more meaningful because it is Jesus Christ on whom we feast. Verse 42 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. A little bit of bread and fish is not going to satisfy for a long time. Jesus is the bread that when eaten will make you never hungry again. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. And the satisfaction has rich presence in the Old Testament. In Psalm 107 verse 9, it says of God, He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry with good things. And in Matthew 5 verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Both of these verses show us that people are coming hungry and longing. Are you hungry? Are you longing? Is there something that Jesus needs to satisfy? Is it your pain, your loneliness, your sin? Is it your exhaustion? Is it your aimlessness? Whatever it is where you are hungry, where you are longing, I can promise you this. Your soul is not lacking an easier situation. Your soul is not lacking more comfort. Your soul is not lacking more money. Your soul is not lacking better motivation to be a better person. You're not lacking just sleep. You're not, this new agenda is not going to fix it. Your soul lacks Christ. That is the hole in our lives that only Jesus can fill. Psalm 17 is one of my favorites, and it starts off strange. It talks about how the world gathers all these possessions, and then talks about how all the enemies of the psalmist are going to gather together their inheritances and pass them on to their children. They're going to have lots of children, and what he's really doing is describing this life of cultural success and abundance. They're They're going to have gathered so much, and they're going to have children to pass their inheritance to. What a name. What a legacy. This is worldly success. And then at the very end, the psalmist says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, that is after he dies, without all the worldly success, he says, after I die and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. It's the face of Jesus that satisfies. All the riches of the world cannot do what Jesus can do. This is a deep satisfaction that fills deep longings that earthly things cannot fill. We, though, if we are in Christ, can rest in Jesus, knowing that He has restored us to God the Father and will carry us to completion. We can rest in Jesus, knowing that our sins are entirely paid for. We can come and be refilled with the truth every Sunday. And every day as we dive into God's word and remind ourselves of the truth and we receive it all by faith, we come hungry. We receive and rest upon him alone to give us the satisfaction that we've always desired. Let us run into his arms and find real satisfaction that only comes from him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we need you. In the craziness and busyness of life with limitations pulling us one way and ideals and dreams pulling us another way, we admit defeat. We are sheep. We are weak. We are worn out. None of these earthly pursuits are going to satisfy us. The shepherds of this world want only to devour us. Would you please teach us? Teach us that truth. Teach it to our hearts by your Spirit who testifies within us. And draw out our longings toward Jesus Christ, because He alone can satisfy. He gives life. He is love. He acts graciously. He gives mercy. He gives light in the darkness. He restores. He is the great Lord, the good shepherd. So it is in His precious name we pray. Amen.